welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavruta, Yerdena Asband. Our daf of the day, Masachet Yevamot, daf Kuf Gimel, page 103. So our daf opens with some discussion in the context of Chalitza about potential deformities and issues that might get in the way of the standard use or whatever of a Chalitza shoe on a regular leg and the question of, you know, what happens if you have... Uh, you know, I'm not even sure that all of these issues that are described here are significant deformities, at least not in the modern era, but the question of, you know, a club foot or whatever, like the question is, can you do chalitza at all? And if you can, what modifications might necessarily need to be made? Fine, that's not even what I want to talk about. What happens then is that the Gemara shifts gears uh, quite a ways on Tamad Aleph, and it says as follows. Um, well, we're talking about a case of, or, or the Gemara talks about, first is talking about a case of um, uh, uh, breech birth, really, I think that's the way we would talk about it nowadays, which is pretty rare nowadays also, because if a baby is breech, either they try to turn the baby around or they try to have a C-section because people are not adept. Breech births are a higher risk and uh, they don't want to do it. They want to make sure that there's a lower risk. Anyway, the Gemara takes from that and goes on and says, Tashma, lo asa raglav, lo asa svamo. So the Gemara says, come in here, right, Tashma. We've got another verse. And this verse is in Sefer Shmuel, 2 Samuel. It says he had neither dressed his feet, raglav, nor trimmed his beard or his mustache, whatever. Now, the problem is that this, this verse itself, you know, here it's taken out of context. And the Gemara says, really what's talking about is lishnama alya. This is a euphemism. What's the euphemism? The dressing the feet which sounds like, you know, actually something about feet, seems to be a matter of referring to pubic hair because the thigh area could be called a regel. And so the Gemara comes and says, like, when you're, this whole verse is speaking in, you know, a more discreet or decorous way than might otherwise be used, Tashma, and the Gemara goes on to say, and then we've got another verse also in Shemuel, but this time in 1 Samuel, where it says Shaul went to cover his feet. But in this case, the lishna ma'alya, the euphemism here means to urinate, meaning, again, regal, speaking about the thighs. But the whole Gemara really is saying, where do we have cases of regal, of the term regal that we know means foot or leg, and where it's used to mean something really totally different, and it's a euphemism for something that is a little bit less, you know, table talk, polite company. Tashma, we've got another one. Ach, So the Gemara says, come in here. We've got the feet from the verse. It's a verse in Sefer Shoftim about Eglon. Eglon is the king of Moab. And it says, surely he was covering his feet in the cabinet or the room, really, of the cool of the cool room. And so the Gemara says, Lishna It is, again, a euphemism. What's the euphemism here? Ben Ragleha. No, no. So again, we've got another verse that's being that's another euphemism from when Sisra encounters Yael, which is you know the story that is told really on Rosh Hashanah, I guess, in the context of blowing shofar and Sisra's mother wailing for her in the sounds of the shofar. But really, he's met up with Yael and she's going to kill him. Ben Ragleha says in her feet, and then the rest of that verse in Sefer Shoftim, chapter five which is, again, this section that we, we read it even on, uh, it's the whole story of, of Yael and Sisra, 
in Shirat Vora, in Sefer Shoftim. It says, he sank, he fell, and the implication here is, according to the Gemara, Lishna Ma'alya, what is this uh, euphemism for? The regel, again, means thigh, and in this case it means that the two of them seem to have had sexual intercourse, which is certainly not the basic shot, the plain sense of the text in the Navi. Um, and then the Gemara goes on to explain what happened, and this is what I really wanted to get to, meaning the Gemara has this kind of very complicated way of traversing the discussion about um, the actual phenomenon of you know, deformities or, or abnormalities in feet that leads to a discussion of the breech birth, and then we get these euphemisms, and then we get this discussion about the story of Sistra and Yael. Rabbi Yochanan says that that wicked man, meaning Sisra, right? What did he do? He had seven acts of intercourse with Yael in that same day. And the verse says, and it's the same verse that we just said, that we just heard about, right? Ben Raglea, Kara, Nafla, Shachav, Ben Raglea, Kara, Nafal, Basher, Kara, Sham, Nafal, Shadud. Shadud. Sorry. So what does that mean? At her feet, what did he do? He sank, he fell, he lay. At her feet, he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell down dead. Right? So there's a lot of verbs going on here, and it seems very repetitious, and the Gemara does not like that kind of, what we're going to say, oh, it's a poetic language to make sure that we understand just you know how intense this event was. And instead, the Gemara says, no, each one of these times that we have a verb here is is to indicate yet another um, sexual, an act of sexual intercourse between the two of them. And the implication is that Yael is trying to tire him out, which is, you know, to, I guess, get him to fall asleep, whatever. And then at that point is when he will be weak enough for her to then kill him, meaning he is, he's a general of the army. Like there's reason for her to have worked hard at this. Um, but the problem is like, the Gemara is not immune to the question here, right? How could Yael do this, right? What is she doing to herself? To what extent is she, in fact, you know, it seems like, not to put too fine a point of it, but it seems like she's prostituting herself, right, for the sake of getting to the point of killing him. And, you know, then the question is, meaning the concern is like what she actually you know, deriving any kind of benefit or any kind of pleasure from this kind of, you know, extreme sin. And Rabbi Yochanan says, in the name of Roshim Bar Yochai, that every act that would be a benefit for a wicked person is an unpleasant thing or a distasteful thing for a righteous person. So, therefore, the very fact that she's doing this act that might be, you know, a pleasurable event where she arasha, because she's the opposite, because she's righteous, it ends up being... Um, completely unpleasurable for her and she's only doing it for the sake of the benefit meaning to the i'm sorry for the sake of the good that she's doing um namely trying to kill him or coming to the point that she'll be able to kill him and this claim by rabbi yochan in the name of rabbi about that which is you know fun for the wicked is going to be painful for the righteous comes back to a verse in Sefer Breshit, the book of Genesis, in the story of Yaakov and Lavan, where um, God says to Lavan specifically, be careful that you don't speak to Yaakov either good or bad. Meaning, and the Gemara explains, 
The Gemara says, so we understand why God would caution him not to say anything bad, but, you know, why would he not be allowed to say anything good? And the answer is, Because the thing that, that Lavan would think was a good thing would actually turn out to be a bad thing for a righteous person like Yaakov, and therefore Lavan shouldn't say any of it at all. Um, okay, now all of this kind of... <laughs> I don't want to spend too much time on this, Agatha, because I know you're Dana, you have plenty to talk about. Um, I just want to note that what happens is that when we go on from this story of Lavan and Yaakov, again, our Gemara is kind of winding through these different biblical texts for the sake of, I guess, making the point overall, but we're far afield from the original discussion of uh, Chalitza, right? And and then the... Um, the Gemara goes on to say that he he puts in her his filth, right? He's contaminating her. This, of course, is is a description of in the sexual act between, um, presumably between Sisra and Yael. And then Rabbi Yochanan goes on to talk about the Nachash, the serpent, the snake in Gan Eden, and the Midrash that says that the that the seduction of Eve, of Chava, wasn't just to get her to eat the apple, but that there's actual sexual relations between the, the snake and Chava, and that he's, you know, contaminated her. Now, it's not exactly clear whether you have to go that far in the Midrash. Maybe he just contaminated her, you know, in terms of corrupting her, enabling her to violate this command. But the point is that then, then that, the Gemara takes this even st- another step further, Shamdu. Um, sorry, Yisrael Shamdu al Har Sinai Pasca Zuhamatan Goyim Shalom Amdu Bahar Sinai Lo Pasca Zuhamatan. So we come back to this idea that there's a contamination, the contamination that happened between Chava and the Nachash, Eve and the serpent, um, continued all the way until the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. At that point, the Jewish people, in their acceptance of the Torah, were no longer contaminated. But the non-Jews who did not stand at Sinai, did not get the Torah, they remain contaminated. Now bring that back to Yael and Sisra and the idea that Sisra himself may have been deriving benefit, pleasure, right? But he is in that context, in that category of being a Rasha, where she, a righteous person then, is going to be, you know, repulsed from this contamination, you know, that she would allow herself to be sullied by him, but for this greater good of coming later to kill him. Um, it's a very strange Gemara in the middle of all of this Chalitza conversation. Yeah, and it calls to mind to me also the Gemara about Esther and Achashverosh. You know, that famous Gemara that she's sort of like Karka Olam and was very passive. There's something about these stories where sort of a woman uses her sexuality or her beauty to sort of, you know, manipulate a man uh, or to manipulate what happens. I almost in a way appreciate that Chazal almost want to take the onus off of the woman by saying like, it's not a woman doing something bad. And I think they read these two stories this particular way to make Yael and Esther completely uh, clean. But I'll, I'll make this more difficult, which is that there are other Gemara's that point out that Yael herself is not Jewish, right? Like this is not right. a simple story. No, so, no, no. But you hear, but that's the similarity, I think. Like, no, no, I agree with you. I, I hear the comparison you're drawing. I'm just saying that the, this is complex. It's, it's a messy story here. I think that if we were to be able to take the time to unpack it for real, like in a, 
and an hour and a half type of discussion, I think there's plenty more to discuss. Right. And I think, right. And I think, I don't know if part of the motivation is to say like, this isn't a norm for Jewish women and this isn't the way Jewish women behave. And so they almost want to go to the other extreme in it, but you know, just something to think about, like, why, why is this so important to say this to Chazal? Like you could have gone out of your way to say like, they had sexual relations seven times, but then like, why the discussion about whether or not Yael benefited from it, you know? And also like, even when you read the story of Achish and Esther, it's clear she's not party to this. Like the women just had to go and offer themselves up, but they go out of their way to describe how, again, she was a passive in all of it. So I just find that to be very interesting. Um, I'm going to move on to something on Amud Bet, which I find to be just one of these great Gemara's that just so sort of the like, uh, intersection of a variety of different halakhic concepts all together. And so what the Gemara does here now is they want to talk about Amara Papi Mashme de Rava. Rapapi says the name of Rava, right? Sandal Hamuskar. Okay, the case of the Sandal Muskar. So here the intersection is Sarat with Chalitza. So we know with Sarat, with somebody who has leprosy, that there was a process where the coin would come and either look at the person or the house wall or the item of clothes. Um, you know, uh, uh, you know, and basically say, um, you know, whether or not it actually was Saras. And sometimes what they would do is they would say, oh, it's definitely Saras. And sometimes they know you quarantine for, um, you know, you quarantine for seven days. Um, and, um, you know, so that's what a muscar is. A muscar is when you're in that quarantine part. So the question is, can you use a shoe for halitza that is either muscar that's in that quarantine or if it is in the uh, or it's muchlat, or it's like known to have leprosy. Just a great question. <laughs> you know, so so he says, so the first version they have is where puppy says the name of Rava, Sandal Muskar, You shouldn't use it for Khalitza if it's in that quarantine period for seven days. But if you did, Bidiyavid will say that it's okay. Sandal muchlat lo tachlotzpo v'imchaltzel chalitzpsula. If you use a muchlat one, it's totally not okay. Rapapa much made the rava. Now they have a uh, a different version. And note it's Rapapa, not Rapapi, but also in the name of Rava. Echad sandal muskar v'echad sandal muchlat lo tachlotzpo. Both of those, either one, you shouldn't use for chalitzpsula v'imchaltzel chalitzpsul shira. But Rapapa's statement is is that both of them are bidiyah, but okay, as opposed to the muchlat one of Rapapi, where he says not okay at all. And then what the Gemara basically does is it goes through other parallels, right? Then it wants to talk about whether this would be true. And it tries to bring a parallel from the quarantined house, right? Um, right? In other words, you have this quarantined house, okay? And so the question is, can you become tummy in the quarantine house? Can that quarantine house be Mikabel kind of makes somebody be Mikabel Tuma, right? If there was something, uh, in other words, if someone touches the inside of the house, right? If there was something, uh, you know, tummy in the house, can you become tummy from a from a house that's muskar, right? And it, this Brisa says yes. Right, and a confirmed house, right? The question is, if you touch it from inside, right? So it says whether you touch it from inside. Or touching it from behind, meaning from the outside, both this and that's the quarantine house and the confirmed house, you can basically get tummy from, from entering it. 
right? And if it enters your mind to say that an item with basically confirmed leprosy is considered as if it were, the word here literally means crush, meaning not intact, meaning there's a requirement to burn it. So in other words, that in a way, the house doesn't actually exist because it is a leprosy house. It's a Saraz house. So the house is no longer a house. So the question is, how could you become tummy from it, right? In other words, how could they teach this? Vahabainan, right? This is why the Pasuk says in Vayikra chapter 14, verse 46, Vahaba el habayit, right? It still calls it a bayit. So it's teaching us the leka. In other words, that this requirement, in other words, uh, just as the this house that is confirmed that has leprosy has to be, basically has to be burned down, right? And maybe you should actually think that it wouldn't really be considered, it shouldn't be considered like an actual house because it still calls it a bayit. It's teaching you, no, it's still a house. Even though a house with Sarat is going to be burnt down, even if it's in that state, it's still considered to be a house. Shani Hatan, so the Gemara says, so, so therefore what this would mean about Chalitza is, is why couldn't you use a shoe that's mukhla, right? You, you should be lechatzila, you should be able, uh, you should be able to use it because it still should be considered a shoe. And so it says, Shani Hatsan. The Gemara answers it's different in this case of the house. The Amar Krav, because the Pusik says, Benatat etabayit, he shall break down the house. Afilu Bishat Right? I went a little bit ahead because he, when he breaks down the house, even when he breaks it down, it's still called a house. And so it's not parallel to this case of the, the Na'al. But again, just so interesting how they're approaching it. You're, you, you have, like now there's a third level. We have an issue of Chalitza. We're intersecting it with um, with Saras and then intersecting it also with the concept of something being tame and how do we uh, how do we acquire Tuma? And then the Gemara is now going to go through another example of this. Tosho, right? So now they're talking about a rag that's three by three, which again, it's a question of whether it can become impure. I'm not going to read the example, but my point is, I, you know, and this discussion carries on into the top of the um, other Amud. Um, but I just think we see a wonderful example here of, um, you know, how Gemara works, right? It's layering halacha upon halacha and trying to see how do all our understandings of different areas of halacha, how do they work and impact each other? Um, so I just thought this was like a great passage. And again, it goes, they're going to go through a variety of other examples but this confluence of Chalitza, Tzoraz, Tuma, to have this sort of all appear together is like, to me, what Gemara always does, uh, what the Gemara sort of always does, uh, always does best. And then the fourth category they're going to bring into this also is a category of, of, of Avodah Like if something was used for Avodah it also needs to be destroyed. So the meta question they're asking all of here is, is in these categories of Tzoraz, uh, and um, of and I and uh, of Avodah Zara, is the item still considered an item, even though it's going to need to be destroyed? But again, you sort of are having four categories together, uh, sort of, and we're playing around with it to see like how do they all impact each other, and what do we do with all these different halachic categories? So to me, this was like a lot of Gemara fun. So it's interesting. It's Gemara fun. I also find it sometimes the the question of why do we really need to bring in all of these things? Because the the, the Chalitza discussion seemed to be doing fine on its own. But I do think that this is the daft that goes 
far afield from all those original Halitza practical, here's how to do, what to do kind of discussion. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rinkish reviews and all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hodgin website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP and our and then go and learn.